card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, Mr. Next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Post Game Podcast, the Wharton Moneyball Post Game Podcast. Your crash course on the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. And it is also repeated throughout the week on Sirius XM 111. I'm one of the hosts of Wharton Moneyball, Professor Adi Weiner. I am a professor of statistics at the Wharton School of Business, and I'm here to break down the top takeaways from our show. Actually, this week, this past week, I should say, we were in Houston. We recorded our show live from Houston, from the convention center, from the radio row, where all the broadcasters from around the country were gathered in preparation for the biggest sporting event of the year. We had two guests. We had Joe Horrigan, who's uh, from the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and we have Steve Palazzolo, who is from Pro Football Focus. Let's go to our first clip from Joe. What do you think of kind of, I mean, because I, I, I'm sure you track what's been happening with the Baseball Hall of mm-hmm. Fame the last mm-hmm. few years, and they're kind of moved towards essentially more public ballots, right. a little bit more kind of transparency. Writers are essentially, you know, the fans almost demand that they describe their sort of, you know, like thought thinking, process yeah, for yeah. that. Yeah, and I guess the, you know, I don't want to criticize anybody's system, but ours, because just what I explained oh, it, going through, <laughs> <laughs> going through the reduction balloting, yeah. literally, and we announce each phase of, you know, how they progressed, you know, who, who went on, who obviously, who went forward, and then we do the it, from the room, you know, we will announce who went from 15 to 10 and 10 to 5 and then the up or down on 5. But it, it's the part that we keep confidential is how the selectors voted so that they can get in that room and they can be open. They can be, you know, they, it's, it's that, that sense of I'm going to tell you what I really believe as opposed to what I'm afraid you're going to tell someone. Joe, who are the selectors? That sounds like a big job. Well, it's, it's 48 members of the media, and there's 32 what we call geographical selectors, one from each NFL city, two from New York because there's two franchises. And the others are what we call at-large selectors who mm-hmm. represent the league uh, from the media from a more broad perspective, mm-hmm. usually national or, or regional, uh, or have been in multiple cities on assignment over their careers. This year, for the first time, we added two at-large selectors. And what uh, they represent is the first time we've ever had Hall of Famers as a part of the selection committee. But we maintain the, the committee must be members of the media. So there are two Hall of Famers who are also working and covering pro football in the media. Uh, okay. So we have James Lofton and Dan Fouts as selectors this year, voting members. So there we have a short discussion about the types of electors that exist for the Hall of Fame for football. There are 48 members of the media. And it's a very different process than exists in baseball, where it's hundreds of members of the media submitting ballots and under very special rules. And the pro football does it quite differently. They have a winnowing process where about 18 players are brought to the table and then all the members of the election committee, all 48 members, are locked into a room all day long until they can produce a uh, list of Hall of Fame inductees. And it's kept extremely private. There's no publication of the ballots. One of the piece of information we learned later in the interview 
had to do with the probability that anyone elected or who makes it to the final 18 eventually gets elected. And I believe that probability was well over 90%. So if you get down to the level where they're seriously considering you, you're almost certainly going to make it. Here's our next clip from Joe. One of the things that we we just had a show, we discussed the Hall of Fame in baseball. And mm-hmm. one of the angles was it's a Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. which means that all of your performance is of, is relevant, not mm-hmm. just regular season, but mm-hmm. also off season and, mm-hmm. and highlight moments, World mm-hmm. Series. Is, how does that play out in the yeah, football there, Hall of there, Fame? There are two different philosophies or schools of thought. Now, baseball has what they call a morals clause. We do not. Our judgment is that we want to judge our Hall of Fame is what they did as a player, a coach, or contributor. We don't judge them whether it's good or bad off the field. In other words, a very good example is you know, people keep asking me, why isn't Pat Tillman in the Hall of Fame? I says, he's in my Hall of Fame. He's in the America Hall of Fame. But his pro football career wasn't enough to say that he was one of the greatest pro football players ever. Mm-hmm. So we acknowledge in our Hall of Fame itself, the museum, we acknowledge all players, not just Hall of Famers. Anybody had a cup of coffee that made it to the NFL defied the odds just to get there. So we have have created a personal archive on every single player who's ever played the game. Well, that was a very interesting conversation. I actually asked a question uh, asking Joe to contrast the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is a Hall of Fame and which has a morals clause, but it also invites the question what exactly in your history gets considered and fame in my context had to do with how famous you are and the answer we got actually went into the direction of fame like in pat tillman's case he became a war hero he was killed in action and then also the angle about morals clause makes it quite an interesting contrast between baseball compared to football in the sense that baseball does not have that morals clause which keeps out players like Pete Rose and eventually may permanently keep out players like Barry Bonds and 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 uh, Roger Clemens but actually I was referring to something more specific having to do with the fame that results from success in the highest attention grabbing situation so for example a player who is maybe mediocre during the regular season but is incredibly good in one or two Super Bowls, or in baseball's case, World Series, or in the postseason in general. What do you do with their fame as accomplished on the field in actual athletic performance, but it's not necessarily of a, a, it doesn't accrue in in size and in quantity to make them a really genuinely great player historically. And the thing about baseball is we don't really know how to do that, to deal with it. We just sort of deal with it in an ad hoc personal level. And I think football, it probably matters more because careers are, I think, are shorter in general. And that's why um, maybe fame obtained during the classic times of the year, like the Super Bowl, might matter more. But we never actually got an answer to that question. So let's go to number three, our third clip, which is uh, Joe Harrigan will be talking again, uh, this time about longevity and peak performance. So, and, and I mean, bringing up somebody like, um, I get, I mean, Pat Tillman's not a great example of this, mm-hmm. but like uh, often when we discuss the Baseball Hall of Fame, we talk about like kind of, there's two general paths uh, to, to getting in there. You can either have a, an incredible career longevity mm-hmm. where you, you, you sort of are, are certainly above average for your entire career and pile up these sort of counting statistics. But never the best. Right. But right. never the right. best. Or right. you can have this sort of peak, peak period, sometimes relatively short, where you just stand above, head and shoulders above the mm-hmm. crowd. In the, in, for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, 
are those two paths still sort of equally relevant, or, yeah, or do you, really, do you always need that longevity? No, you don't, and that's a very, very timely question because we actually have two finalists this year in Tony Baselli and uh, Terrell Davis, both mm-hmm. whom had short careers, relatively speaking, but have made it to that room. And when you get in what we call the room, since 1970... 89% of those that got in the room eventually got elected to the Hall of Fame. Uh, so you don't lose it when you no, want no, to. Okay. You know, and you, then if you even leave the modern era category, you can go into our senior category, which is altogether different, but it goes into the same general pool. Well, obviously it, it matters, both longevity and peak performance. So let's go on to the next clip, which is a discussion with Steve Palazzolo of Pro Football Focus. Just to give you a little bit of background on Pro Football Focus, they take uh, data that they painstakingly collect on a play-by-play basis where they evaluate every single player on the field and, and rate their performance. And this uh, produces a monstrous database that they sell to professional football teams and also Division One, top Division One teams in college football and they of course are looking for clients and it's an amazing data collection endeavor combining not only data collection but also subject matter knowledge and the data is just sitting there and it, it it's it's ripe for really good uh, statistical analysis so let's go to steve so we're accustomed to dealing with you know box score stats basically right. you guys are building out a, a much broader range of statistics can you give us some examples of the kinds of things you're providing these teams yeah, I mean, they get, um, you know, run concepts. Do they run power? Do they run inside zone? Some of those uh, more advanced football terms. Mm-hmm. We can, you know, basically anything that they do, they have their uh, lowest level coaches on a Monday morning. It's like, all right, we'll put together the game plan. Let's go look at uh, this team's last four games. What what run concept do they run? Which down and distance situation do they run it in? That's on their desk by 6 a.m. Monday morning because we've already done it. And we've already done it for every single game of the season, not just their last four games. So mm-hmm. we're basically doing a lot of their grunt work for them uh, well, well, well ahead of time. So mm-hmm. that's just a part of that. And then, you know, you know, we're kind of two things. We're all of that data, but also the player evaluation part yeah. of it. And that's the part that, you know, we're passionate about. That's what we created. Um, so, you know, Tom Brady this year, he had two interceptions. And, you know, a lot of time you have intercept, you have luck with interception, right? You yeah. throw a bad pass, linebacker drops Tip it. Should have been. Yeah, exactly. So Brady's two interceptions were real this year. You know, he did not make bad decisions. He did not get lucky. That was a number that was uh, incredible on paper, and it was the reality. I mean, that's how well he played. So oh. we kind of quantify those things. I call them turnover-worthy plays. So what Steve is discussing is the outcome of his system, which allows you to grade every play. And the example that he concluded with was the interception. Sometimes interceptions are really deserved. You just threw it right at the player. They're really mistakes that you earned. Other times the interceptions are interceptions that uh, happen by accident, a tip ball, um, a funny play. And as a result, you get credited or demerited with an interception. And the point that was made by Steve at the end is that Brady only had two interceptions and uh, it wasn't as if he had made a whole bunch of bad throws and, and he, they should have been intercepted. Those were his, really is uh, reflective of his true value. So let's go on to our next clip again from Steve. And we're talking about data accuracy in real-time analytics. Steve, what, are you guys, what have you guys gotten better at over time? How have you improved what you're doing? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, we always just collect more data. We make it a little bit more accurate. Uh, we train our guys a little bit better. Um, I, I just think it's it's just doing more and doing more quickly. You know, this year we, we developed this new technology that allowed us to essentially do games in real time and collect data as quickly as we oh could. My. Whereas we used to have to wait till the game ended and, uh, and then you'd get sent a file. And now we have 
we can have 15 people working on a game at the same time. Mm -hmm. We can do it in real time. So I think it's the speed and the accuracy, and we're really trying to get to that point where we're going so quickly that we're like the second screen for an NFL fan, you know, you're watching the game and then you're watching, wow, PFF is giving us Getting all this scored? great information. Really? Wow. We're Are trying you, to get to that point. We're, we're close. Do you grade every player in every play? Yeah. So in theory, we do, you know, in most plays, though, you know, we have a we have a plus minus system. Zero is average plus and it goes uh, in point five increments on most plays. A lot of guys are just going to get a zero or an expected grade. So, you know, there's a run play to the right. That wide receiver way on the left on the other side, probably just going to get a zero um, because he's not involved in the play. So it sounds daunting, but once you get trained up in the system and know what you're looking for, it's a little bit more efficient. So our last clip is a discussion of grading plays in the NFL and some of the difficulties that the company has and the challenges they have in actually going through and grading every single play and every player. I'm curious, to what extent can we roll up a team's power ranking and accurately from summing the individual's player scores that you guys come up with. So it's interesting because we do that on our site and we hate it. We hate the fact that we, we put no for, for team stuff because we're right now we're just an individual player evaluation site. We didn't put any thought into our team stuff yet, yeah, and we yeah. really just added it up yeah. on the side. But so you have no weights. So obviously the quarterback so. weight should get more and others right. less. Or, or so. interactions. I mean, it literally, you are kind of doing the whole is yeah. equal to the sum of its parts. Well, the weird, the weird part about it is we can grade a play and say, you know, four offensive linemen missed their block, but if one guy misses a tackle, it could be a 50-yard run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the offensive line's bad on that play, but you picked up 50 yards. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. But all that said, we add up our grades. We put them on the site. The top two teams this year: New England Patriots, Atlanta Falcons. They are the top two teams. So even just with, a simple, with simple. no science to it, it was like, wow, those are the best. And last year, the top team was the Denver Broncos mm-hmm. in our just added up system, and in the Carolina Panthers. And it doesn't always work out that that way, it, um, but it generally gets you at least mm-hmm. in the ballpark. And I think there's a little other manipulation we can do to make that better. But it's funny because we haven't focused on it. But a lot of times, it, it points us very much in the right direction. <laughs> So that was actually an interesting discussion. Essentially, what Steve is telling you is that they produce a rating at every position, and then they actually roll them up into a team rating by just adding them together, and they don't do anything complicated. And yet, it seems to work relatively well. At least, it, it discovers the best teams this year, the best team last year. I'm not sure that's the most interesting thing to be able to do is identify the top, because the top usually sticks out in many dimensions, and they often are the most and the easiest to spot because they are at the top. They're the extreme. And, and generally, no matter how you look at them, you're going to discover them. I think what's much more interesting is down the line, second, third, fourth, towards the bottom. Though, those are the locations in the, in the hierarchy, the ranking, where the different measures, different ways of doing an analysis might uncover something at least more frequently. But it certainly is uh, a, a open question for the company, how they're going to roll up the different values at different positions and then score an overall team. Not sure they care that much. They're selling value to individual teams, but maybe the gambler wants to know. So that was the conclusion of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. This week was broadcast out of Houston, and we're now back to our regular broadcasts in the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School on Locust Walk in Philadelphia. If you want to hear the show live, you can do that on Wednesday mornings, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., and then, of course, replayed throughout the week on Sirius XM 111. Join us again next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics.